2,000 years ago, an event happened near the city of Jerusalem that changed the course of history. Jesus Christ was resurrected bodily from the grave. The question we need to answer this morning is, how does that change history, and why does that matter? I want to make two points by way of introduction before we get into the application of why the resurrection is important. The first one is simply that if you're skeptical at all about Christianity, especially this notion that Jesus Christ existed and rose from the dead, then let me just say that you're in good company. You're in good company. The New Testament records that even Jesus' closest followers, his best friends, did not believe his resurrection either. No one standing outside his tomb on Sunday morning counted down 10, 9, 8, 3, 2, 1, waiting for the resurrection. Nobody. Mary Magdalene, for example, was one of them. In John chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, it says, Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. She didn't say, by the way, Jesus is resurrected. Somebody, they, have stolen the body. It's a grave robbery, according to Mary Magdalene, the one that Jesus cast seven demons out of, and she was one of his closest followers. The disciples were no better. When Mary ran back to tell the disciples, look at their response in Luke 24. But they did not believe the women because the words seemed like nonsense. Again, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, resurrection of the dead, that's a bunch of garbage. You're in good company. One other further sign that they'd given up hope and had no expectation of the resurrection was found in the disciples later on, in John chapter 20 and verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They're not out looking for the resurrected Jesus and celebrating in the streets that he's risen. They're hiding for fear of their lives and for good reason. They just watched, well, they didn't watch actually, they dispersed from him and ran away in fear. They missed the whole crucifixion, but they knew darn well it happened. And so they're not expecting resurrection. They're hiding out because they think, wow, the Romans are serious. The Jewish people are serious. They took our Messiah and killed him. We must be next. So again, it's clear from his closest followers that any hopes of a resurrection were not in their minds. Their hopes in him and the commission of, of being the Christ had come to an end. And the amazing thing was, Jesus had already discipled them and told them this was going to happen. In Mark 9, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. 
This is important. Their pre-existing beliefs of who Jesus was and why he had come wouldn't allow them to even comprehend or hear or listen to the teachings that he had to, on this issue of resurrection. Now, if you don't want to know more about that, I spoke about their expectations of him last week in the triumphal entry. But in fairness to them, don't we do this all the time? Scripture tells us things about Jesus, but our pre-existing beliefs won't allow us to accept them for various reasons. So again, if you're skeptical, you're in good company. And this is one reason I actually personally believe that what the Bible has to teach is true. You might be skeptical that the Bible is trustworthy this morning. Well, let me ask you a question if you're skeptical. If you wanted to fabricate a story and make up a lie, would you put in the text in your book that your closest followers were doubters and didn't believe that these things were possible? If I was going to make up a story to prove my point, I'd do everything in my power to make it look good, to make it look amazing, so that there was no doubts in people's minds. But the New Testament writers, Jesus' closest followers, had no problem documenting their disbelief. The fact, the fact that they were willing to record their doubt, I, I believe is important for the authentication of what the scriptures say. But something happened. Something happened in history that never happened before and will never happen again in terms of what he did. But they went from hiding and disbelieving to proclaiming. So what was the change? They saw him. They physically saw him. They saw him resurrected in body. Now, the scriptures record their different emotions when they saw him. In Luke 24 and verse 37, it says the whole group were initially startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Of course they were. If you saw someone from the dead standing in your living room, wouldn't you be frightened and startled? Especially when you're at their funeral? But later, that startled and frightenment turned into joy. In John chapter 20, Jesus came and stood among them, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. The doubters were no longer doubting because of the witness of the resurrection. They were eyewitnesses to these events. And it's because of their eyewitness that we sit here today. Christianity as we know it was founded on an event. I'll say that again, Christianity was founded on an event. If this had not happened, there'd be no Christianity today. You'd have no New Testament scriptures to read about. The Good Samaritan would not be circulating to the world, as we and people even in the non-church know that story. The whole famous John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will never perish but have eternal life. That verse would not even be on bumper stickers. There would be no fish on cars to proclaim a Christian. I don't put them on my car because of my driving habits. <laughs> but communion is coming up, so I'll confess that to the Lord. But uh, you get the point. 
The resurrection is, was absolutely foundational. It is the critical event for why we sit in church today and why you even bother gathering at Easter. But the second point I want to make is that what happened to Jesus is not what happened to others in the lives of who he touched. What happened to Jesus is not what happened to others in the lives he touched. And what I mean is in the category of raising people from the dead. You know, there were four recorded raisings of the dead that I could think of in preparation for this sermon that Jesus did. There was Jairus' daughter in Matthew 9. Jesus went and looked, took the girl by hand and she stood up. She was a dead woman. The widow's son in Luke 7. Jesus walked over to the coffin and touched it. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And the dead boy sat up and began to talk. Those who came to life at the crucifixion in Matthew 27. Um, he says, at that moment the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two. The earth shook, rocks spilled, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. And finally, probably the most famous is Lazarus. Jesus shouted when he was dead, Come out, and the dead man came out. What happened to Jesus is not what happened to these people. All these people that Jesus touched were returning to life as they knew it before. All of these people died again. This was not the case with Jesus. When he came to life, he came to life in a new kind of existence, a new creation, one that had never occurred in history before. He had a resurrected body and was the prototype, the prototype of what our bodies will be like when we're ready to inhabit the new heavens and new earth at his return. Those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were resuscitated to die again, restored to their old body. What happened to Jesus was a new body, one that was to be, have a body that was to be eternal in nature. My professor at Regent College said it this way on Lazarus. He said, Lazarus's stone was rolled back to let him out. Jesus' stone was rolled back to reveal his identity. That's why you go to school, because they have all the good one-liners. Isn't that good? Lazarus' stone was rolled back to let him out. Jesus' stone was to reveal his identity. How can we be sure? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. I passed on to you what was most important and what also had been passed on to me. This is Paul speaking. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter, witness, and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. He then continues to say this about Jesus. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest. 
Not Lazarus. Not Jairus' daughter. Jesus. He's the first. And he's of all those who have died. So that you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given the new life. And I love this verse. But there's an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Not Lazarus, not Jairus the daughter. <laughs> then all who belong to Christ will be raised from when he comes back. After that, the end will come, and he will return the kingdom of God over the kingdom over to God the Father. Something happened to Jesus first. And what he did to others is not what he experienced. It was a picture of what he was going to do to others, or what was going to happen, but it wasn't the reality. He was the first. He received the eternal body, the one that's ready to inhabit heaven and earth. I love uh, this thought. In this way, Easter be could be titled Creation Take Two. Creation Take Two. God breathed into a Adam and Eve a life-giving body and spirit. When Jesus comes back, he will breathe into us a life-giving body and spirit. Adam took the whole race to the cemetery. Jesus takes the whole race to glory. If they receive him and the forgiveness of sins, he offers. But that's up to you. And what do you want to do with Jesus this Easter? <laughs> so why did he have to be resurrected? What changes with him being alive? I want to give you six profound implications as to the importance of the resurrection. The first one the first one is the forgiveness of sins, the offer of the forgiveness of sins. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died, and Christ are lost. So, Romans teaches that the wages of sin is death. Why do we die? Why do we die? Why does the body go to the ground? Because of sin. Because of sin. Jesus, however, he never sinned. So therefore, when he physically died, death could not be his bodily reality. Does that make sense? The wages of sin is not only spiritual death, but bodily death. Then if I have no sin, I can't bodily die. So I have only the option but to raise. And if he died for sin, for his, that would mean he died for his own, if he didn't rise, I should say, he died for his own sin. If he died for his own sin, he's not a substitute for ours. And so that when he comes back, we can't be eternally raised. I'm going to give you an illustration of this. Elijah, if you'd be like willing to come up to me.
Wait, it's all the cops. Let me do that for you. Okay. This is what uh, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. So Elijah, you, uh, did you know that the eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal? Yes. You did? Cool. All right. So I can trust you not to steal from me. Yes. That's great. Okay. Well, I'm just going to do something over here in my bin, okay? I'm just going to put my cell phone down right here. Okay. I got what I needed. Why do you have your arms crossed, Elijah? Because. Where's my cell phone? Did you, do you have my cell phone? You do? Oh no, you see. Oh boy. You just broke the eighth commandment. Did you know that? No. You didn't? Okay, well you did. It's called thou shalt not steal. The problem is that the Bible teaches in Romans 6 that the wages of sin, stealing, is death. So you're spiritually and physically now separated from God. Now, God is loving and he loves you like crazy, but he has to judge sin. Anybody of you who's a loving parent understands this. You love your kids, so when they do wrong, you discipline them, you correct them. You don't let them just go off on their own. But your problem is your love is so unconditional for your child that you want the relationship to be restored. So you do everything in your power as a parent to restore the relationship. And so God in his love, he sent Jesus Christ to the earth to die for Elijah's sin and your sin. But the problem is, because of sin, he's not going to die. So his body goes to the grave. <laughs> he's really dead. So he's in the grave. <laughs> this is great. Got more than I asked for. Here's the cool thing. Elijah, in his lifetime, believed the message that Jesus died for his sin. He confessed those sins to Jesus and said, Jesus, I stole when I was like a kid. And I remember that. I also lied to my parents constantly. When I was older, I was addicted to pornography and cheated on my wife and my husband. I used to get angry all the time. I was a slave to drugs and alcohol. I was a gossip and so on and so forth. But Elijah, he confessed those things. And so the promise to Elijah was, when I come back as Jesus, because of his faith in me, and my forgiveness, offer of forgiveness of sin for him, when I come back and I shout, and I come back to redeem the earth, he will be allowed to bodily raise with me, because I have a perfect body, and I've dealt with the sin. So when I come back, I grabbed Elijah by the hand and I pull him out of the grave and his body will re be reunited with his spirit because of what Christ did. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, Elijah stays in the grave. That's what Paul's saying. You are still in your sins. Which means, implication-wise, number two, there should be no fear in death for those who know Christ. 
O death, where death is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has met its match in Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we don't have to fear it. Death does not have the last word over us. And you know what? If I've learned anything in the last two, three years, death is one of people's, if not their greatest fear. Look at all the lengths people in Canada went to two years ago to try to avoid death. The, the, the absolute craziness in terms of, like, we went to try to avoid death. The resurrection of Jesus sets us free, even if we receive terminal illness and go through immense suffering. Because the promise is, he's coming back to redeem our bodies. I mean, consider the time on a scale, you live 70, 80, 90 years, maybe only a couple weeks, whatever. When you consider eternity, it's nothing. It also provides us the hope of a future heaven and life with God. Look at Peter's confidence. I love this guy because Peter went from believing to denying and disbelieving when Mary told him he was resurrected back to believing again. What happened to Peter? How did he go through this hamster wheel of belief, unbelief, belief, unbelief? The resurrection. That changes theology. In 1 Peter, he says, In His great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, which is Jesus' second coming. I love this. A living hope. Not a dead hope. It's a living hope. And this is not a verb, like, I hope so. This is a noun. It's a person, place, or thing. So while we're alive now, we live in hope because of the resurrection. There's a living hope that this is not the end of the world. Life as we know it. There's a new heavens and new earth awaiting for us. If you were to ask Peter, what's the foundation of your faith? He would not say this. Well, I walked in water one day with Jesus. I saw him feed 5,000 with bread and fish, like out of nowhere. He'd say, listen, Genesis House, the foundation of my faith is that I witnessed and saw the resurrected Lord. Proof of that? He was in hiding after three years of all Jesus taught and everything he said and did. The resurrection changed his life. And now he understood that he has a living hope. Again, my professor, Daryl Johnson, was saying this, that he's been engaging with people in, in, in BC. He lives in the Vancouver area. He's been engaging with young people under 40. He's 75, that's why young people are under 40. He said it's, it's astronomical how, we, how, how like the, the world has changed in his time, or for him now, because Virtually every person under 40 he speaks to says they have nothing to look forward to in the future. They live with an uncertainty and this looking at the world and go, how in the world is this world ever going to change? In his evangelistic efforts, the people he deals with 
really have no hope. And Peter says the resurrection changes everything. It gives you a living hope. It also gives you a resolve to endure suffering. Peter continues, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds and of all trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an expressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, if you look at the previous verses in 3 to 5, in the first line, he says, You're born to a living hope through the resurrection. He continues in verse 6 to talk about suffering now and enduring trials. Here's what's important, and this speaks volumes to our churches today. Peter did not count, uh, doubt God's love or existence because of pain and suffering. Let me say that again. Peter, who witnessed the resurrection, did not doubt God's love for him or existence because of pain, suffering, and trials. You notice his paradigm in faith? God didn't cease to exist because life often was difficult. Suffering to Peter was not evidence that God had abandoned him. Again, what was foundational to this? He watched his living Lord suffer and go through trials, but then he witnessed him raised. And we understand the, the true implications of why he went to the cross. I've watched countless of Christians walk away from God because of uh, pain and suffering. If you've lost faith in God today, or you're in the place where you're considering walking away or ditching Him because of evil, because of pain, because of suffering, may Peter's words speak to you this morning. He looked at Jesus and knew God had had, his Father had abandoned him. He looked at his own life and knew God hadn't abandoned him. Know that God hasn't abandoned you. Peter and his closest followers maintained faith in trials because the foundation of their faith was not the necessity to live in a perfect world, but founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They maintained their faith because they have a living Oh. oh, I'm missing a slide. The next one is to be is that we can trust the scriptures. Actually, I'll put it here. Yeah, we can trust the scriptures. We can bank on Jesus' teaching because of the resurrection. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval of all he says and the way we are to live in this world. So when he does the Sermon on the Mount and he says, everyone here listen up, retaliation is not the way to make peace. The resurrection says amen to that. 
when he says, you're not to hate your enemies, you're to pray for them. The resurrection says amen to that. Genesis House, you need to stop worrying every day about finances. And worrying if you're going to have this and have that or you're going to be provided for. Jesus says, don't worry about those things in his sermon. If you, if you follow the kingdom in, his, in my way and go, and go after my kingdom, I will take care of you. The resurrection says yes to that. Easter tells us that he was telling the truth. Therefore, we're to put confidence in following what he has to say without fear. We can also embrace his crazy claims that he is the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I solely am the only way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No other religious beliefs out there save you from sin. No other religious leaders went to the cross and died for sin. And no other religious leaders who claimed theirs is true ever had one rise from the dead with 500 or so eyewitnesses. The resurrection says you trust the Bible and everything it says. And the oldest lie in the world is from the devil in the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve one command, i.e. one scripture. He says, don't eat from this tree or you'll die. And the devil said, can you really trust God's word? Can you really trust God's word? That's what he's saying. And Adam and Eve go, I guess I can't. And look at the mess we're in. The resurrection says, you can trust God's word. Don't believe the oldest lie in the world, did God really say? Finally, the impossible becomes possible. Why? The impossible happened to him. He rose from the grave. Therefore, we can expect incredible things to happen in our lives as well. We can expect broken lives to be changed. We can expect addictions to be broken. We can expect people to be set free from generational sins. We can expect cities to be transformed. He can make happen what none of us would dream should happen. And getting back to Mary, a woman who was demon-possessed, seven demons over, was set free. And was one of the closest followers. Paul, a persecutor of the church, a religious terrorist, basically Osama bin Laden in modern day's language, was set free and became the one who wrote virtually every scripture I quoted this morning. The impossible becomes possible. All of these promises, though, these six promises, hinge on one thing. Your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe what was spoken this morning? If you have already embraced this teaching and understanding of who He is, actually, forget that. If you've embraced Him, as a person who desires a relationship with you, then the answer would be yeah. 
faith has got a lot of promises to hold. If you haven't, these promises can be given to you. But God in His love laid down His life for every single person in this church this morning. Again, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life and will not perish. So God's like a loving Father, right? He says, He's not going to force Himself on you. He doesn't do that. He basically stands with His arms wide open like this. And He says, I've provided a way that you have to come. So by faith you walk into His arms and receive a big Holy Spirit hug. If you want to receive the Lord this morning, and you've understood the Gospel in, in this way, basically see it how I handed my hand out to Elijah. I just gave my hand out, he had to grab my hand. And the Lord's asking you to extend yours to His. So just acknowledge, acknowledge that you sinned against the Holy God. Believe that He died in your place on the cross. Confess your sins. Thank Him for His forgiveness. And dedicate your life to Him as a life of service. Amen.